This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Discovered in 1673 by some French guys, Illinois was the 21st state to enter the Union. Whenever someone mentions Illinois, I immediately jump to Chicago and the dozens of shootings that take place there every week. They have a very rich history, though. France initially laid claim to Illinois, but gave their lands that were east of the Mississippi River to Britain in the 1760s. This was after the French and Indian War. The natives in this territory absolutely despised the white settlers. It seemed that there was rarely peace until after the Black Hawk War ended in 1832. That was the last major conflict with the natives. Must be something in the water because this part of the country is still a fucking war zone. I actually knew someone from Illinois back in my younger years. He lived about 40 minutes outside of Chicago. Used to be a big beefy metalhead dude, but the liberalism crept in and turned him into something else. But anyway. You're not here for my life story. You're here for the death penalty. Good lord, what did you do? I'm kidding. Illinois has a very long death penalty history. The first person executed here was a slave named Manuel, who was burned at the stake for witchcraft in 1779. Since then, a couple hundred people have been put to death for a handful of different crimes. The vast majority of these were murder, but there's also one case of conspiracy to murder, as well as two attempted rapes. Hanging was their method of execution until 1928 when they switched to electrocution. The last person in Illinois to fry was James Dukes in 1962. The final 11 executions here would be done by lethal injection. Andrew Cocorellis was the last person to be put down by the state of Illinois. They abolished the death penalty in 2011. Like most blue states, they probably need it more than anyone else, but that's just my humble, very biased opinion. Grab your body armor and your concealed carry permit, if you want to get out of this one alive anyway. We're going to Illinois. Every time I research a crime committed by someone out on bail or parole, I have to ask myself, what the fuck crack are these judges smoking? I intend to do a whole episode on this topic at some point. I know, I'm biased, but parole and bail really shouldn't be options for violent offenders. Rapists and murderers should be kept in a cage indefinitely, or put down. Granted, those out on bail haven't been convicted yet, but if there's enough evidence to support the prosecution's claims, maybe it's best to not take that chance. There is no place in society for people who have no regard for other people. But I guess sometimes we have to learn that the hard way. Hernando Williams was an average man from Illinois. He attended high school until 1972 when he made the decision to drop out. He would go on to work as an assistant manager for the John Herman Company, which his father owned. Williams was married to a woman named Shirley Coleman for a few years. They had a daughter together in 1976. In 1977, they divorced. 
Shirley would go on to become the alderman of the 16th ward in Chicago. An alderman is basically a high-ranking city council member. If you've ever seen the show F is for Family, that'll kind of give you an idea. I can find a ton on Shirley's life as she made something of herself, but her ex-husband is another story. What I do know about Hernando Williams is that he was charged with kidnapping and raping a woman sometime in 1978 and managed to bail himself out. Linda Goldstone was a doctor's wife and the mother of a little boy. She taught a Lamaze class. So basically, she was helping pregnant women learn how to give birth without medical intervention. Breathing exercises and shit like that. It's a damn shame she wasn't around to help me out when I was pregnant with my son. I wanted to go natural, but I didn't get a choice. That's another story for another episode. Stay tuned. On her way to teach this class on March 29, 1978, Linda was accosted by a man with a gun. He told her, this is a robbery, and she gave him her money. But that wasn't enough for her attacker. He made her undress and get in the front seat of his car. This was only the beginning of Linda's nightmare. Linda was kept in the trunk of her attacker's car for a few days. He'd even gone to court with her locked away in there. During this hearing, the prosecution told the judge they weren't ready for trial yet, and Hernando Williams was allowed to leave the courthouse. After getting outside, Williams noticed some people standing around the back of his car, talking to Linda while she was trapped inside. He told them to go away before climbing inside and leaving the courthouse. One of these people would get the license plate number and call the police. This is where the story should end, but it isn't. The cops didn't take this tip seriously. Good job, Chicago. That is some fine police work. Linda was dragged around to different motels over the course of two days. Williams sexually assaulted her during this time. Early in the morning of April 1st, 1978, Williams decided to let Linda go without any further harm. He even gave her bus fare to get home. Rather than wait for a bus, she went to a nearby house and knocked on the door. A Chicago firefighter answered and Linda told him she needed help. The man told her he would call the police, but rather than let the strange woman into his house, he shut the door and left her outside. I'm being pulled two directions with this one. On one hand, what the fuck are you doing leaving a vulnerable person out in the dark alone? But at the same time, you don't want a stranger in your house. I get it. I, I just, I don't know. Answer the door with a gun in your hand if you're worried. Stay strapped or get clapped? Williams had left Linda at the bus stop, but he got nervous that she wouldn't actually get on a bus and go home. After circling around the block, he saw her talking to a man inside a house. This spooked him, obviously. He just wanted her to go home and pretend nothing happened. After the man closed his door, Williams got out of his car and called out to Linda. He led her into an alley before shooting her twice and leaving her on the ground. This poor woman. Jesus Christ. Never go to the second location. I know Linda probably feared for her life and only went with him because she was afraid of getting shot, but goddamn, better to die where someone can see you than to be taken out into the darkness. 
Williams was later found at his parents' house. He was washing out the trunk of his car when they arrived. You know, like normal people do. I bought a used car like five years ago, and there's still shit in the back from the previous owner. Seriously, I have some of their mail. The dealership detailed the rest of the car, but left a ton of garbage in the back for some reason. I don't know. Maybe they didn't want to be suspected of murder? God knows only murderers clean out their trunks. Williams would be examined by a psychiatrist before his trial and diagnosed with borderline personality disorder with episodic deterioration in reality testing and thought processes with episodic psychotic thinking. That was a fucking sentence, wasn't it? In my experience, defense attorneys help you fight your case to the best of their ability. Sometimes they pull rabbits out of their asses to come up with a loophole or some other excuse for their clients. After all, it is their job to provide a defense for the accused. But I've often wondered, how do you excuse kidnapping or rape? Murder can be justified in some rare cases, but there ain't no reason for a person to rape another person. The attorneys Williams had for this case urged him to plead guilty to all his charges. Aggravated kidnapping, robbery, rape, murder. They told him to do it so that he could get out of the death penalty. After all, someone willing to own up to what they did is less likely to get a death sentence than someone who refuses to accept responsibility. This strategy did not work. In January of 1980, the all-white jury sentenced the all-black Hernando Williams to death. Some people might claim that's racism at work. I personally fall into the, he murdered a little boy's mom for no reason camp. And again, this is the 80s. Maybe we're both right. Hernando Williams was executed by lethal injection on March 22, 1995. A man already charged with brutalizing a woman finally got what he deserved when he attacked a second one. I guess he learned from his first case that leaving witnesses behind is a bad idea. It's a shame they didn't keep him caged the first time. He robbed an innocent woman of her money and life, took a loving wife and mother away from her family, and ended the dreams she had of helping other women through the process of bringing new life into this world. This is why you don't let violent offenders out. Pro-death penalty or not, I think we can all agree that violent criminals shouldn't be given bail or early release. South Africa's parole system is absolutely fucked, to be blunt. I've had the opportunity to learn all about that thanks to Nicole from True Crime South Africa. They'll let anyone out. But we'll get into all that mess when I eventually branch out and do non-US episodes. Williams offered no final words. His last meal request was any kind of seafood. Illinois has a strangely high amount of double and triple executions throughout their history. On April 15, 1921, four men were executed. Just five years and one day later, on April 16, 1926, five men were executed. Some of these are criminals convicted of the same crime, but the next two cases I'm going to tell you about are on completely opposite ends of the depravity spectrum. Two men whose paths never crossed, with different motives, different crimes, and different victims, put to death in the same manner on the same day.
Walter Stewart was destined to have a rough life. Born in 1956, his parents abandoned him as a baby, leaving him to be raised by a severely mentally ill grandfather and a violent grandmother. If he had any siblings, I doubt he ever knew them, but he did have an older cousin who was a bit of a bad seed. This cousin would lead Stewart down a path of drug addiction and crime. On February 10, 1980, two employees of the Empire Jewelry Store in Berwyn showed up to open the store for business. It was 11 a.m. Danilo Rodica, his nine-year-old daughter Joanne, and a woman named Lara Lansinger were the first people there that day. It was an average Sunday for the employees. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. At around 1.30, a man in a beige trench coat and blue tracksuit entered the store. Okay, red flag number one right here. Probably didn't help that he was also wearing sunglasses. You know how you can just tell certain people are fucked up by the way they're dressed? Yeah, that's, that's the vibe I'm getting from this guy. The man apparently didn't set any alarms off, though, as he asked Lara to show him some rings, and she obliged. He went from one display case to another, asking for sizes and prices of the items. Eventually, some other customers came in, and Lara went to help them while the strange tracksuit man continued browsing. As she was putting batteries and watches for these new customers, she noticed that Mr. Sunglasses had left. Later on that day, around 4 p.m., the owner of the jewelry store and her boyfriend arrived. Linda Manzano and Tom Pavlopoulos had come in on that specific day because Tom's cousin Evelyn was expecting to be buying a gift for her boyfriend. When Evelyn arrived, Linda helped her with her purchase. Rather than leave right after Evelyn, Tom and Linda decided to wait until closing time and leave with the other employees. Between 4.30 and 5 that afternoon, the strange tracksuit guy came back. He'd changed his clothes. He was now wearing an almost entirely brown outfit and carrying a brown briefcase. This dude sticks out like a sore thumb and I don't even have a picture of him. This weird motherfucker made his way to the back of the store to a counter where Lara and Linda were standing. He specifically requested that Lara help him check out jewelry again. After some time, he asked if he'd be able to pay with a check as long as he showed his driver's license. Danny Rodica, one of the employees who had opened that day, interjected and told him that since the banks were closed on Sunday, they couldn't certify the check. So no. So no, you can't pay with a check, you walking red flag. By this point, it was getting late and Tom signaled to Linda that she needed to hurry up and finish dealing with this strange man so they could close the store. Linda asked the man to come back on Monday when they'd have more time. While Linda was telling him he needed to return the next day, Stewart reached into his coat and pulled out a 32 caliber revolver. He pointed it at Lara and Linda, telling them, this is a stick-up and not to move. He held the gun and his briefcase in his left hand, because that makes sense. With his other hand, he reached over the counter and began putting all the diamond rings he could get his hands on into the briefcase. When he'd gotten everything he could reach, he demanded that Linda get him all the jewelry and watches he asked for. She complied. This situation could have ended here, as Stuart backed away from the group with his gun still pointed at him and told him not to do anything because he had two coke dealers outside waiting for him. Could have just left it there and made off with a bag of jewels, but he didn't. He went outside, talked to two men, grabbed a different briefcase, and came back. 
he ordered Linda to put more jewelry in, which she did with no incident. She wasn't going to fuck with this guy. She wanted to walk away with her life. Stewart ordered Tom, Danny, and Linda to move closer together. Neither of the men moved. He ordered them to move many times before Linda finally took a step back. After Linda moved out of the way, Stewart shot her in the abdomen. He was standing about five feet away from her. She fell backwards, and the two men she'd been standing with approached Stewart. Meanwhile, in the back of the store, Lara had heard the gunshot and pushed little Joanne under a shelf to ensure her safety. It was at this point she also pushed the silent alarm to alert the police that they were being robbed. Tom had managed to grab the hand that was holding Stewart's gun while Danny jumped on his back. They were fighting like hell. Unfortunately, Tom lost his grip on the hand holding the gun and it went off, hitting Danny and knocking him into a display counter. Tom was still trying to fight off their attacker. Though she was injured, Linda managed to jump on his back and scratch his face, which briefly got him away from Tom. Stuart shot Tom at this point and shoved Linda onto the ground. Danny was still convulsing on the floor, and Stuart shot him again to end his life. You'd think that this carnage was enough, right? Yeah, no. Not for Walter Stewart. He made his way to the back of the store where Lara and Joanne were hiding. He pointed his gun in Lara's face and demanded to know where the briefcase was. Lara, obviously terrified, screamed, Please don't kill me. Please don't shoot me. Stewart pulled the trigger. It clicked. His gun was empty. Knowing he was out of ammo, he jumped back over the counter and ran out of the store. Two other witnesses that had been out shopping that day had seen Stewart in the jewelry store with a gun and asked the employees of a nearby Walgreens to call the police. Thanks to these two witnesses, as well as Lara Lansinger, Stewart had no chance of getting away. As he left the store, he encountered two officers. He was told not to make any sudden moves and to take his hand out of his pocket. This guy really just likes making everything worse for himself, though. After a brief glance at his surroundings, he took off running. One of the officers went after him, and about 20 feet into the chase, another officer coming from the opposite direction caught up to them. Stewart was arrested. He was read his rights and then told the officers, I shot them because they started to fight with me. Danny and Tom perished in this tragedy. Linda somehow pulled through and was taken to a local hospital to treat the gunshot wound to her stomach. She underwent surgery to remove the bullet and was in the hospital for nine days, but was given permission to attend the funeral services of her boyfriend Tom and her brother Danny. This woman has unimaginable strength to not only survive the physical damage she did, but the emotional peril of losing two men she loved dearly. God damn. If you're out there, Linda, I hope you're living your best life. Linda went to the police station to view a lineup and identify the man who had robbed her store. While she was there, she said, You killed my brother. Stewart turned and said, Get that bitch out of here. Linda repeated herself, You killed my brother. So what? It should have been your mother. Stewart was charged with 18 different offenses. Six murder charges, two attempted murders, four armed robbery charges, four aggravated battery charges, and two armed violence charges. 
God damn, you're looking at a long time. At least you were back in 1980. Stewart opted to have a bench trial instead of a jury trial. This meant that his case would be presented to a judge only rather than 12 civilians. Stewart's attorneys told him that he'd be less likely to get a death sentence if he pled guilty. Huh, that sounds familiar. Are these the same people from the last case? The judge explained to Stewart that even though he was pleading guilty, there was still a chance that the death sentence could be imposed if aggravating factors were found. He understood and still went through with his plea. The judge then told him he had the choice of a jury for his sentencing hearing, which he again waived his right to. He was putting everything on this judge. Stewart got two concurrent 30-year sentences for attempted murder and armed robbery, and two death sentences for the murders of Danny Rodica and Tom Pavlopoulos. That was some fine advice his defense attorneys gave him. Many people will say that the truth sets you free. It often does. It sets you free from the weight of your own conscience, but it doesn't set you free from the hands of the state. Appeals were filed, as they always are, and Stewart tried to claim ineffective assistance of counsel. I actually kind of see it with this one. Most defense attorneys will legal loophole their way into some kind of defense, but these ones told him to just admit guilt and get it over with. Stewart also claimed that his rights were violated when the trial judge denied his request for a mental examination. I guess I should probably let y'all know that Stewart was high out of his fucking mind on Valium, codeine, and morphine at the time of the murders. Doesn't excuse what he did, though, at all, and doesn't warrant a mental evaluation. He's a drug addict, not a crazy guy. The trial judge realized this and didn't see the need to put time and money into an evaluation. The few mitigating factors presented were not enough to get Stewart out of the death penalty. Walter Stewart was executed by lethal injection on November 19, 1997. Though some might claim he didn't deserve to meet his end this way because his murderous actions were influenced by drugs, I have to disagree. He showed no mercy to these innocent people. Two were brutally gunned down, one was seriously injured, and another would have lost her life had he not run out of bullets. None of his family or the family of his victims attended his execution. He was given a Bible before his execution, but refused a religious service. Stewart was also offered a sedative, but declined that as well. His execution went down without a problem, and he was pronounced dead at 12.30 a.m. His last words were, I love you, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. His last meal was fried pork chops, candied yams, string beans, fried cornbread, black-eyed peas, peach cobbler, and papaya orange juice. Nothing like some last-minute Christianity and fried food when you're knocking on death's door. Believe it or not, there is a worse crime than murder in the course of a robbery. Murder during the course of a sexual assault. This next case is even worse than that. My heart hurts after looking into this one. I am grateful that Illinois had the sense to put this animal down before they abolished the death penalty. Then again, there are many others like him that still wander the streets. They get a slap on the wrist rather than a needle in the arm, though they deserve a lot more than that. 
Durlin Edmonds was the fourth of six children destined to live a rough life. He was born in 1952 to a mother who would later commit suicide. She left a note and blamed his bizarre behavior for her demise. According to his sisters, he lived in his own world and had disturbing sexual fantasies. When he was 12, he attempted to get under his sleeping mother's dress. That sets the fucking tone on this one, let me tell ya. Edmonds would be convicted of his first rape by the age of 17. He'd go on to commit three more after this. His victims included an 11-year-old girl and a woman who was eight months pregnant. While in prison, he attempted suicide and at one point during a stint for armed robbery, used a homemade ice pick to threaten another inmate into submission so he could anally rape him before orally raping him. This guy has some fucking issues. I don't do content warnings, but that's gonna have to be the content warning for this one because it only gets worse. Buckle up and bring something to puke in. His deviant sexual behavior continued on the outside as well. Edmonds was known to drink a literal shit ton of rum and rock back and forth while staring up into the sky. The mental illness is here. There ain't no getting away from it. At one point, Edmonds threw a rock through his sister's bedroom window and ripped the door off the hinges. Why? Because he had found out that his sister's friend was a lesbian. Not sure exactly what the fuck, but okay. This dude has some weird fascination with his family. At an outdoor gathering, Edmonds attempted to put his hand up his stepmother's dress and had to be physically removed from the yard. During the same incident, he tried to choke his 21-year-old niece and claimed that he had heard bad things about her while he was in prison. It's clear to me, and probably to you, that this man is severely mentally disturbed. He was determined to have a borderline personality and possibly be schizophrenic. The defense saw it, the prosecution saw it, hell, Ray Charles could probably see it. I normally have some level of sympathy for the mentally ill, probably not as much as some people would like, but this guy gets none of it from me. He got what was coming to him for what he did. On October 27, 1977, Edmonds preyed on yet another vulnerable person, perhaps more vulnerable than any of the others. Ricky Miller was just nine years old when he was attacked by two men in an alley. They brutalized him. He walked away with his life, but was severely injured and bleeding. Edmonds noticed him after his encounter with these men and offered to help him. After the boy came upstairs, Edmonds saw that he was bleeding from his rectum. Yeah, that kind of attack. Some people are just not people. They're subhuman. And they fucking got away with it. Edmonds took this little boy up to his apartment and told him, God damn, this is a lot harder than you'd think. He told Ricky that he wanted to have anal intercourse with him. I have no fucking words. Edmonds made Ricky undress and saw that he was covered in blood and feces from his prior attack. Being the kind-hearted soul that he was, Edmonds cleaned him off and put down some plastic sheets on the bed before sodomizing the poor boy. Ricky cried from the pain and begged Edmonds to stop, but he wouldn't. 
rather than show this nine-year-old little boy some mercy, he forced his head down into a pillow to silence him. Edmonds would realize after his act of depravity was complete that Ricky wasn't breathing anymore. He'd suffocated. Edmonds claimed to have tried resuscitating Ricky, but it didn't work, so he put the boy into a dumpster, face first, bagged up his clothes in the plastic before scattering them in a nearby alley, and went on with his day. His handprints were later found on the garbage bags, as well as a newspaper that had been found nearby. Ricky's cause of death was determined to be suffocation in association with contusions and lacerations of the anus. Excuse me while I never set foot in Chicago, or let either of my kids go more than three feet away from me when we're in public. Holy shit, I am actually nauseous right now. My heart aches for this little boy. Edmonds denied raping Ricky. He tried to blame it on his friend, Jerome Williams, who he had claimed came over in a panic state, asking Edmonds to buy some heroin. Williams had allegedly left a bag of kids' clothes in Edmonds' room overnight, and when Edmonds realized this, he knew he needed to get rid of it. Williams had apparently been arrested for molesting children before, and Edmonds decided to deal with the bag himself so his friend wouldn't get in trouble. By this point, Ricky's body had been found. Williams told Edmonds that he'd get rid of the bag of evidence. Edmonds later claimed that Williams had talked about raping the boy and drowning him so he wouldn't tell anyone. It was also alleged that Edmonds and Williams had shot heroin together, and after this specific time, Williams died of an overdose. Sounds like a bunch of nonsense to me. Edmonds later claimed that he made the statements about Ricky's rape and murder only because the police wouldn't leave him alone, and that they were false. He was innocent. So what we have here, my friends, is a severely mentally ill convicted rapist, a little brutalized boy, and a laundry list of excuses. Edmonds denied all the charges against him, but also waived his right to a jury trial. How the fuck does that make any sense? Schizophrenia must be a hell of a thing. Edmonds was found guilty of murder and deviant sexual assault. This made him eligible for the death penalty, but as you probably guessed, he appealed. Claimed that his counsel was ineffective and that the death penalty was unconstitutional. Always makes me laugh. Murderers flipping out because the state murdering someone is unconstitutional. Pretty sure raping and suffocating a nine-year-old boy violates the fuck out of his rights, but I guess that doesn't matter? Derlin Edmonds was executed by lethal injection on November 19, 1997. Mental illness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card in every case. We don't have asylums anymore. Sorry, state hospitals for you PC folks who somehow found your way over to this corner of the internet. What are we supposed to do with these people who commit abhorrent crimes but also have a diagnosis? You tell me. What's your plan? I understand that not everyone is in control of their mind at the time of their crimes, but where do you draw the line? What does a person have to do for their mental illness to be drowned out by their crime? I find it really hard to sit on the fence when it comes to a crime against a child. There is no excuse. Derlin Edmonds got what he fucking deserved, only 20 years later than he should have gotten it. 
Edmonds didn't have any last words. His last meal was fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, and apple pie. So there it is. A double execution carried out on two men from entirely different walks of life with entirely different crimes. We are, after all, an equal opportunity podcast. They both got what was coming to them, but maybe I'm just an asshole. There is a famous execution in Illinois that I may decide to cover later on. You might have heard of a man named Pogo the Clown. Sorry, I'm mispronouncing that. It's John Wayne Gacy. He's been done to death, pun partially intended, but if I gain enough of a following, or those who are listening are interested in me covering the more well-known serial killers, I may throw a couple of the bigger cases together and give my two cents. Let me know, for real. My contact details are available in the description, and I'd love to hear from the handful of listeners I know I have. The most recent execution in Illinois will be covered in an upcoming episode. I intended to have it released already, but the stars just didn't align for me. It's a really fucked up one. The second to last execution in Illinois wasn't carried out on someone quite as disturbed, but he still got what was coming to him. There's not a whole lot available on the early life of Lloyd Hampton. He was born in Texas in 1954 and led a very troubled life. He dropped out of school in 7th grade and spent many years behind bars for various crimes, including assault and robbery, as well as assault with a deadly weapon in a case where he tortured a woman in California. Hampton was one of those unfortunate people who was destined to destroy his life and some others in the process. Roy Pendleton was a 69-year-old widower living in a motel in Troy, Illinois. On February 8, 1990, Roy came into contact with Hampton, who asked him for a ride to St. Louis and offered to give him money for gas. Roy said no. I mean, who in their right mind would drive a stranger across state lines? This ain't the 70s. Hampton drove off by himself. Yeah, he drove off in a vehicle. What the fuck is this guy doing? Sounds to me like he might be trying to sell someone a crowbar at 2 in the morning. About 10 minutes later, Hampton came back and knocked on the door to Roy's room, this time asking to use the bathroom. Roy let him in. Why? Compassion, probably. Once he got inside, Hampton told Roy that he was very foolish for letting him in. He then commanded the elderly man to lie down on the bed. Hampton started going through Roy's belongings and opted to steal a microwave and a suitcase. You know, I made the tweaker joke a minute ago, but now I'm actually starting to wonder. Apparently, Hampton got spooked and decided to tie Roy up. His wrists and ankles were bound, and tape was placed over his mouth and nose. This apparently wasn't enough, and Roy was also hogtied with a dog leash. This poor guy... I can't see inside the mind of Lloyd Hampton, but I can make the assumption that he was a sick bastard. In addition to tying Roy up and stealing from him, Hampton tortured him with a chef's knife and burned his eyelid with a cigarette. His forehead was slashed a few times because Hampton thought a dead body wouldn't bleed and he wanted to make sure that Roy was dead. These wounds did bleed. Hampton later stabbed Roy in the neck with a chef's knife. This wound didn't bleed. 
After getting the suitcase in the microwave, Hampton stole Roy's car and drove to a nearby bar where he tried to cash a check for $500 that he had stolen from Roy. He wasn't able to cash the check, but did make it a point to buy a round of drinks for the other patrons in the bar. What a nice guy. Hampton left the bar and made his way to a Texaco gas station where he was arrested. Not for murder, though. Something completely unrelated. The cops who arrested him noted that the car he was driving belonged to Roy Pendleton. So did the check and some safe deposit box keys in Hampton's possession. They made the assumption that something had happened to Roy and went to the motel to check. They found his body, still hogtied, with a chef's knife lodged in his neck. Hampton was questioned and admitted what he'd done. In addition to the confession, they had fingerprints, cigarette butts with Hampton's DNA, and Roy's blood on his pants. This was an open and shut case. Unlike most cowardly bastards who murder innocent people, Hampton actually pled guilty to all three murder charges. Wait a minute, he only killed one guy. But, my dear last meal listener, he committed three different kinds of murder, technically. Intentional murder, murder in the course of a forcible felony, which would be the burglary in this case, and murder in the course of a second forcible felony, armed robbery. He waived a jury trial at his sentencing hearing and was given the death penalty. At this hearing, Hampton said, I would say that should I be sentenced to death, I am aware of the Supreme Court ruling in April concerning appeals filed in behalf of a condemned man. If he doesn't want those appeals, and I would like to state for the record, although it has been pointed out to me that I have state appeals I have to go through, once those are over, I don't wish to have my case appealed by anyone. Guess what? He got an automatic appeal anyway. This was a pointless waste of taxpayer money. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll have to say it again, because the government likes to waste time and money. The man committed an atrocious act on an innocent person. He confessed. He wanted to die. Put the motherfucker down and move on. There is no reason to fight to keep someone alive when they plainly state they don't want to live anymore. Before his execution could take place, he wrote letters to Madison County prosecutors stating that he would kill a jail guard if he wasn't executed. He also told court officials that he had enjoyed killing Roy and felt no remorse for his crime. Despite initially denying appeals and telling everyone he wanted to die for his crime, Hampton had a change of heart after visiting with his sister and some of his friends. The original execution date of November 11, 1992 would be postponed after an appeal was filed. Lloyd Wayne Hampton was executed by lethal injection on January 21, 1998. Appeals really do slow things down. Good lord. At no point did Hampton try to deny his actions. I'll give him credit where it's due. He made a horrible mistake, but he owned up to it and accepted his punishment with at least a little bit of grace. Hampton's last words were, I offer no excuses for the things I've done or have not done. The reasons are irrelevant. I've been running from myself since I was a small boy in Texas, and my 44 years have been filled with intense anger and rage. I blame no one but myself, and I hope my loved ones will forgive me for the sorrow I have caused them. 
If God feels I am worthy of his forgiveness, I'll soon be with my grandparents, brother, and daughter. In 1992, before his initial execution date, Hampton requested coffee and cigarettes instead of a last meal. Not much changed by 1998. His last meal was Coca-Cola and unfiltered camel cigarettes. Reminds me a little bit of a scene in King of the Hill where Nancy tells Dale she's going out and he's like, what about dinner? And she tells him, I left a carton of cigarettes on the table for you. Rest in peace, Johnny Hardwick. And fuck you, Lloyd Hampton. That's it for Illinois, at least for now. We'll be venturing back into Chicago in a few episodes for a truly horrifying case. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. I'm not after your money. I just want to tell fucked up stories. Leave a rumble or review wherever you found me. You can get me on Instagram, at LastMailPod. Oh, and I made a Twitter as well. Same handle as the Instagram. And fuck you, Elon, it's not X, it's Twitter. One more thing before I go. I've been watching my analytics pretty much since I started this thing, and I've noticed I get a single download from Virginia every time a new episode comes out. Do I know you, or are you a random who stumbled onto this shit show of a podcast? Shoot me a message and let me know. I appreciate you. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.